My guest today, Marta Zaraska, is a Polish-Canadian science journalist who's written everywhere from the Washington Post, Scientific American, to New Scientist, The Atlantic Discover, and so many others. Her articles and books have been turned into TV shows in the U.S., Spain, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Russia, Bulgaria, Germany, and Poland, and reprinted around the globe from Oman to Dubai, Australia, and Singapore. She personally has visited over 80 countries in the world, lived in six of them, reported from Rwanda, DR Congo, Nicaragua, India, Togo, Cameroon, and many other places, and currently lives in a tiny village with her husband and daughter in France. March's new book, Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100, is a research-driven case for why optimism, kindness, and strong social networks will keep us living longer than any fitness tractor or other sort of common popular fad or phenomenon. This is a conversation we need more now than ever. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm in New York City. You're in a, a small town in France. Um, grew up originally in Poland. I, I guess outside of Warsaw or somewhere else. No, also middle of nowhere. So, uh, <laughs> got it. Um, and you also, so you would have been, um, you would have been kind of a growing up and a teen through the whole solidarity movement, like Walesa coming in. Um, yep. Was was that a sort of a conscious part of your upbringing and your experience as a kid oh, there? Yeah. It was yeah. extremely important. I mean, my dad was uh, very involved in the whole um, movement against, uh, you know, communist party. So we had uh, we had communist uh, government agents placed outside of our house uh, on a permanent basis. So um, it was quite an important part of yeah. Our what, life. Did you have a sense of, I mean, that's having those agents placed outside your house, was there a sense of fear around that at all? Or just sort of like you had to act in a certain way and behave in a certain way? Or I mean, not for me as a child, because my parents keep, kept me quiet, you know, unaware of what's going on. Only as an adult, I, I, I learned that, you know, a few times my father was fearing he will not be coming back home and said he will be going to prison <laughs> so as a political prisoner and so my parents were starting to pack suitcases in the middle of the night I, I just never knew about those things so for me it was a pretty awesome childhood you know but um yeah I was just not really aware of all these things going on so yeah I mean I, I would imagine the conversations afterwards sort of like in hindsight sitting down with your parents would be pretty eye-opening <laughs> yeah <laughs> um you end up I guess going out into the world um, and starting a career as a journalist, re reporting, traveling a lot, um, but also in you end up in, in law school, and you, so you have degrees in law and photography. I mean, it's mostly that the photography was just kind of a uh, diploma, but I, I'm a lawyer by education, which surprises a lot of people because they think, you know, what has, what does. Uh, 
a lawyer have to do with uh, science journalism. But um, but the thing is, I really think that my degree in journalism prepared me to be a science journalist because when you think about law, it's uh, all about fact-finding and making sure that the argument has no holes in it and also looking from different perspective and trying to see the different side of things and really looking for proof and making sure it's solid. So this is something that really, this kind of training really helped me in my um, science journalism, although I've been a journalist as well for over 20, 20 years. So so um, I've never worked as a journalist uh, professionally. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I have... Um... So I have a background in law also. I practiced for about four or five years. Um, But similar to you, it was was a very long time in my past at this point. (laughs) But I agree. It it gives you a way to look at things, to understand, to question them, to analyze them, to understand arguments on both sides. And and I feel like, especially as a journalist, it would be be valuable because, you know, part of the training of, of law is is you're sort of, you're taught to look at both sides. You know, like yeah. if you're representing this or this, what would be the arguments where, and I feel like in journalism, really good journalism um, does that. Yeah, it should, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious about the photography side also. <laughs> I know you sort of downplayed that a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious what drew you to that and, and whether... As you're out in the field, you know, like now a couple of decades into journalism, whether whether the the photographer's lens eye in some way uh, affects that. I mean, I did use my photography skill in my work as a journalist as well. Journalist as well, because at the very beginning I used to be a foreign affairs journalist, um, uh, so I was reporting from Africa and other developing countries, but mostly in Africa. So I was doing also photography to accompany my stories. Uh, it was always kind of a more of a social, environmental, human rights side than the kind of reporting I was doing. So I did do photography as well for work as a journalist before. Right now, when I'm doing purely science, then there is much less opportunity to use uh, my photography, although it does happen from time to time as well. Yeah. What happens that tips you into um, science journalism? Because it seems like that is, you know, from covering a wide range of things, um, traveling a ton, this, especially over the last four or five years, has become a really strong focus. I mean, I've been doing it for well over 10 years now. Uh, 12 or something like that and um, I generally um, I mean I start stopped doing so much foreign affairs and Africa stuff uh, stories because uh, I was also settling down you know private li- in private life and starting a family and um, that was not the best lifestyle uh, both time wise and safety wise uh, since I was going to places like Democratic Republic of the Congo for example during the conflict and um, so so definitely being a science journalist uh, that goes much better with um, with family and uh, and I'm married to a scientist as well that's definitely you know so we both spend our days reading uh, academic journals and um, and talking to other scientists so so that's kind of a natural path for me. Yeah. It seems like, uh, you know, you, you've written for so many different places. Um, you wrote a piece for uh, Siam Mind, I think it was in 2015, that I I thought was sort of like one of the interesting things um, early that I, I saw, at least my exposure to your writing, it was about happiness and age, yeah. which also to me in a weird way, I wondered if it was the early, like earliest, earliest seeds of your most <laughs> recent book, but... But it was eye-opening because I think a lot of people think, well, as you get older, you you know, you decline and all sorts of things, and it must be the least happy part of your life. And in fact, you know, as as you shared, it's not. Yeah, it was a quiet. Uh quite an interesting piece uh, for me as well because exactly it's and very optimistic as well right uh, that's people often assume that when we age we just become this miserable unhappy creatures and everything just goes downhill at some point from I don't know starting at 50 or something like that but the truth is that it's the opposite that people actually tend to be the most miserable in their midlife and then things start improving and uh, only in extreme old age just the few last months maybe are not that happy but generally you know in, in their 60s and 70s even early 80s people tend to be happier than people in their 30s and 40s and this is for one one reason for that is just lifestyle um, and 
just basically environmental reasons so that you have less responsibility you don't have kids living at home you have less pressure at work or no work anymore so it's generally just the, the environment in which you live but also there are actual biological changes right to the brain and um, and the the way we are wired makes us more likely to become happy later in life yeah i, I love that and like you said it's hopeful yeah. <laughs> um, I guess right around that time also you were working on, would have been your first book, um, Meat Hooked? Yes. So I started working on Meat Hooked in 2014, I think, and it was published in 2016. So Right. So so I have to ask the horrible pun, like what, what got your hooks into? <laughs> this particular thing as a topic. I mean, it's all related, right? Because Meat Hooked was about nutrition. Nutrition is about health as well. So it's it's all very much connected. And uh, Meat Hooked, was on, so it was on, on nutrition, but also on psychology because it was history and science, our obsession, why do we love meat so much? So it was very much based in psychology and nutrition, which are the topics I've been writing about for over a decade now. So... So it was also kind of a natural thing. And also because I myself, I'm kind of a struggling vegetarian. So that's why I was interested in, in this particular topic as well. Yeah, which evolves us to your current book, Growing Young. And I want to dive into a whole bunch of ideas around this because I'm fascinated by it. You know, I have lived in this world of, you know, talking to so many different people and doing a whole bunch of different reading, exploration around however you frame it as lifespan, life extension, uh, you know, like growing old, um, all these different things. And, and, and what makes a difference? What doesn't make a difference? What are we actually talking about when we're talking about all of these things? Um, and you kind of take everything and roll it into one big giant exploration and come up with some surprising ideas. First, I have to tell you a book about living well and living long that has a two-layer, what seems to be buttercream pink cake <laughs> on the cover of it, automatically I have to love, because <laughs> uh, there's a sense of freedom in that. But, um, you know, I, I guess, I think the first question I actually really want to ask you is, when we talk about aging, what are we actually talking about? So, of course, it depends who you are asking. So some people, when they hear aging, they think about some kind of outside beauty. So your wrinkles, whether, you know, your hair is graying or falling out, or they're thinking about Botox and plastic surgery. And this is not absolutely not what I'm writing about. So I'm never saying that we should try to keep our you know appearance or anything like that because this is not what it's about it's about also embracing aging and just enjoying it basically but the truth is that um that if we take care of our health then they both go together so and looks often follow as well but although this is not you know the most important part but sometimes it also happens so that you know we stay healthy we age well we live long it's all connected you know sometimes people tell me that they actually don't want to live to 100 because they fear they will be very sick for a very long time and this is not an appealing perspective. But the truth is that uh, this usually doesn't happen that way. So people who are in good health tend to live long in good health. It's people who struggle health-wise. They stay sick for longer periods and they also die younger. And... Um, Actually, the, the most bizarre statistic, one of the bizarre statistics I've read, uh, is that people who live to be 110 or more, 10% of them, so one in 10, uh, escapes disease until the very last three months of life. So they are healthy for 109 years and nine months, let's say, and then only three last months, they are kind of sickish and then they pass away, which is amazing, you know, when you think about it, that you can stay healthy for, let's say, 109 years. And um, it's the people who live the statistical 82, 81 years who are more likely actually to spend more time being infirm. Yeah, I remember um, reading, you shared something like 18% of people who live an average lifespan or, or people who live an average lifespan spend something like 18% yes. of that entire life ill. Whereas people who are the centenarians who live past 100, I think the average was only 5%. So like you were describing, it's health, 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 health. And then just very quickly <laughs> towards like the, the, yeah. just the absolute end, which is kind of counterintuitive. Um mm. And I guess part of the question also is, you know, like what, 
it, it, it speaks to the idea of health span versus lifespan also. You know, like instead of optimizing for years, optimizing for years spent in good health, um, which I think has become a real big focus for so many of these days. But it also seems that those two are connected, right? So it's not like lifespan versus health span. It seems that if you go for health span, you are very likely to end up with lifespan as well. So it's kind of unlikely for you to get very long lifespan and be sick a lot of the time. I mean, it does happen, but it's not a common thing. Yeah. And, and when we think about um, longevity, I know that the first metric that most people point to is your chronological age. Like, how are you? When were you born? This is your age. And so in theory, you know, that is about how old you would be. And I think for a long time, we just kind of assume that if that's your age, well, the average person is going to have these particular things associated with that age. And, um, but these days I think we're, we're not just measuring age chronologically now, but also, you know, people are pointing to these internal things, to all sorts of other things to try and sort of use them as metrics for, but how old are you actually really on, on a physiological level? Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that we're looking at? Yeah. So there are, of course, chronological age doesn't tell you a lot about person's age and not only later in life but even when you are talking about three-year-old children actually there are already differences and the reason for that is that um, we have those telomeres you may have heard about them and so these are the uh, the protective cups and at the ends of our chromosomes that take uh, an important part in the way we age um, and um, the basic the most simplistic view is that you know that when they get shorter it also means that we kind of are older. But uh, the truth is that they already start shortening when we are still in, in our mother's wombs. And actually, they shorten the fastest during the first four years of life. And uh, and then you can, if you compare the lengths of different people's telomeres, in general, th this is one of the ways of looking how, how their age compares biologically. There's also something called and then DNA methylation clock, that's another type of clock that scientists use uh, based on epigenetics uh, to measure how differently aged biologically people's bodies are. The, all those clocks are still very much imperfect. So when you very often, for example, on the internet, you can see uh, some labs offering to measure your telomeres to tell you how, how old you are or your methylation clock. But the truth is that it doesn't work that way yet. You know, we, we, we can use those tools for research, for comparing populations, for example, but definitely you cannot just simply get it measured and tell you, okay, your, um, your, you know, your birth certificate says you're 30, but really you're or 25 or 45, it just doesn't work that way. We, it's far too early in science to, for us to be able to measure it uh, on an individual level. Yeah, I mean, the, the um, I, I have seen all of these sort of like commercial ways to measure your telomeres. I know it's been a, a hot topic of conversation in the biohacking community for a number <laughs> of years now. And it was interesting to hear the, the research that you shared, which says that, that so much of the variation actually is set up either at birth or shortly after, you know, so... Um, and it's interesting because I have had friends that have, have measured their telomeres or, you know, like send it to whatever the service was and then eaten and changed their lifestyle and moved their body in a particular way. And a year later, sent in, you know, like had, the, had themselves retested and had very different numbers and, and said, well, you know, like I, I had a much healthier lifestyle and now it shows that I have reversed age 10 years. But... I guess what you're saying is that that's not really the way it works, or at least the science not isn't there all. yet. <laughs> Absolutely not. Those services just don't use them. <laughs> Basically, that's the that's the lesson here. Because the, the truth is that the measurements are also so imprecise that if you measure your telomeres and send them to the swap or whatever they are requesting from you and send it to several different labs, they will give you a completely different result. Even if you give two swaps to the same lab one after another, you know, from the same day, they will most likely come up with a very different result. So uh, it's extremely imprecise and tells you basically nothing. So not on an individual level, it's just basically a waste of money. Mm, interesting. Um, as part of your research, were you curious, did you actually do any of that yourself? <laughs> No, I didn't do that. I did a lot of other stuff on myself, yeah. <laughs> but some of them quite unpleasant uh, and involving blood draws, but uh, not that particular, no. Yeah. The the other thing that you mentioned was um, DNA methylation. I know that's, a, that's been a, in a, a bigger part of the conversation, I think, in functional medicine, integrative medicine these days, which is 
really looking at sort of the epigenetic state of your genes, like what's turned on, what's turned off, how does environment, how do genetics affect this? It feels like that has been a more robust field of um, investigation. I mean, once again, they measure very different things. Uh, telomeres and DNA methylation clocks, they measure very different things. And they are both research only right now. And uh, DNA methylation is also not for the individual measurement of how old you are at all. Actually, one of the top scientists uh, who researches um, DNA methylation clocks, he told me that one of his big fears is that it will become the same hype as surrounding telomeres, because it's basically completely incorrect it's just waste of people's money and it's just skews the perception whereas it's it's not what it's for it's not for you know me or you just to send to, to get to, to learn whether we are really 40 or 50 it just doesn't work that way mm. it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home but you're not always at home you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host good life project is sponsored by quince so my wife actually originally introduced me to quince because she loves their clothing and i have been hooked ever since i literally lived in their mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter and as the weather warms up i wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying and quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts performance polos activewear at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands quince partners directly with top factories cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers actually just ordered a new european linen long sleeve button-down shirt super excited to get that and i'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high so if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe i highly recommend you try quince go to quince.com glp for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's quince.com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute, that's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping as a special offer for our listeners new customers get five dollars off a lumi starter pack with the code goodlife at lumideodorant.com don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness that equates to over 40 percent off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code goodlife one of the other things that uh I guess you tracked and it's been on my radar for a while is um, mitochondria, mitochondrial function in your body. So I think we all learned when we were kids, you know, the mitochondria are the 
the power plants of the cell. They're, they're in, implicated in generating energy. And, and I guess as we old, they start to malfunction and become, there are a lot fewer of them. That, I guess, was um, one of the things that you took a look at as well. I mean, it's as one of the ways to, one of the mechanisms behind, behind aging, right? Because the thing is that we still don't really understand aging very well. And definitely mitochondrial dysfunction is one of the mechanisms that are, is likely behind aging, just like telomere shortening is also among them. But there is, you know, very often in popular culture, people are looking for very simple answers. But the problem is with science and especially science of aging, there are just no simple answers. It's very complicated. We still don't understand a lot of those processes. You know, scientists don't even know if we have a limit to our lifespans or not. Uh, the, you know, there, is, <laughs> there was one paper uh, a few years back that, um, that argued that there is a limit of 115 and uh, there was such an amazing back and forth you know, <laughs> between scientists that, that so much fighting on the, on the, in scientific journals after that paper you know, because there is, they are basically split in half disagreeing whether there is a limit or there is no limit and we just don't know, you know if um, there is something that happens that makes us only live 215 more or less because of course Jean Calmon who lived 222 but or maybe there isn't maybe it just happened so far that we didn't live but we could but we could we we don't know yeah I mean I remember reading a number of years back a paper by somebody who said regardless of our biological ability to extend life 300 years would be effectively the 100% cap for any person because by 300 years, your chances of dying accidentally would be at 100%. <laughs> so it's sort of like, there is some kind of cap, at least in theory, um, but uh, we're nowhere near being able to test that in, in a practical way. Um, you also talk about something uh, which, I, I guess, senescence, senescence cells or, or what, you know, quote, zombie cells. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, so this is something I saw in a lab at, uh, at Oxford, uh, which I visited, and um, I was looking basically at how cells are aging and uh, talking to scientists there who showed me this kind of senescent cells and, you know, how, how differently they look from young cells and how they get bloated. And um, and they basically, when cells age, they start accumulating all this junk inside, just basically broken parts. You know, sometimes we think of nature that it's like all efficient and great and, and simple, but the truth is is isn't sometimes it's just really messy and junk and leftover parts stayed in different places. So it's just like with those old cells, they just accumulate broken parts, you could say. And, and that's why they get bigger and bigger. And sometimes the senescent cells, so this age cell, starts secreting different mixes of chemicals that turn other cells also senescent. This is why they call them zombie cells, because they turn other cells zombie. You know, this is part of aging as well. This is some of the processes the scientists are studying to understand, you know, how are we aging or why are we aging? And can we prevent it? Can we, you know, slow it down or, or not? Yeah, and, and I and I guess you know like things like that are, are you know become involved in quote infecting other cells or turning them into zombie cells and also sources of inflammation through the body. I mean these things are interesting to me because we're sort of trying to. There's been so much of a focus I feel like on trying to identify what are the sort of discrete things that we can measure that will in, in some way give us some sense of how we can quantify this thing we call aging. But they're also like, they are, but by definition, they're all reductionist. They're all sort of like looking at these very narrow things rather than the bigger picture, um, which you're saying is really, it's good that we're doing this research, but none of these discrete things are at a point scientifically where we can really use them as tools to, to affect or change behavior. They're sort of like fascinations right now, but mm. not accurate enough on an individual level to make decisions. I mean, in general, I... I... I feel that in our culture, we are very reductionist, as you said, you know, we really want to just, you know, pop one pill, do one test, and everything is beautiful and done. And so that's a problem also that for uh, scientists working in the field of aging, and uh, that they often have to struggle with this problem that whatever they publish, there'll be people turning into it some kind of product or commercial thing and start popping some pills, which is a very generally a very bad idea. And uh, but it just always happens because we just looking for things like that. And that's also why I believe that we are so focused on uh, nutrition uh, as a way to prevent aging, even though of course nutrition is important, but we are really 
obsessing about it sometimes too much because we are thinking, you know, in terms of, you know, how many grams of ancient grains we should be eating or how many, uh, what kind of supplements or, or uh, all these fat diets. We are really looking for this miracle basically somewhere something very simple easily measurable that you can just do one thing and you're done but the problem is that just as i've mentioned before in the whole field of aging it's not that simple it's much it's a much bigger picture and so when things are interacting together and it's never solvable by one pill yeah and it's interesting also i mean you bring up nutrition you know which which really also brings up the question of what do we as a society sort of like what have we been trained to do to try and stay healthy and if we can slow the aging process, but really you know, reduce the risk of disease, things like that. What are the big things that pop onto our radar? Well, it's nutrition, like you said, you know, there's been, whether you're paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, you know, it's all, you know, if, if the idea comes into our domains that says, well, inflammation is a part of what's going on, you know, well, well how do we eat in a way that reduces inflammation? How mm. do we move our bodies. So exercise is always one of the other modalities that people point to um, and how exercise changes your physiology, your brain. And I guess the argument you're making is not that these things don't matter, but in terms of what you might look at, you know, more broadly in the way that you live your life, are they the things that really move the needle the most? And are they the things that we really should be focusing on as, as the primary devotions exactly you know we are just trying i think we're trying to go too deep into those topics because when you think about nutrition and exercise and how they impact our health and aging in in fact these things are very simple you know to eat healthy what you need it's just like michael michael plan said right uh eat food mostly plants not too much that's it it's very simple, right? It's just, you know, you don't have to eat ancient grains and kale and uh, and juice and, you know, whatever fancy goji berries and chia seeds. It's just carrots and apples and it's perfectly fine. Just eat enough of the veggies. They don't have to be organic. Just, you know, just eat them, right? Don't eat too much fast food, not too much sugar. And this is all in all the governments that are, that's what they are telling us, right? It's that many portions, servings, whatever you'll be fine. The same with exercise, you know, you just have to move, but you can just go on a family biking trip. You don't have to go for some fancy exercise classes with some special gadgets that measure everything in your body. This is really not requ not, not required, right? And um, But we really try to go extremely deep into finding, as you said, like which food will prevent this amount of inflammation in my body, right? And at the same time, you know, if we had unlimited time on our hands, then okay, do whatever you want. But the problem is that we don't, and we are very busy people in general. And uh, while we are so concentrating on all these fat diets and supplements and miracle foods and exercise gadgets, we are completely forgetting about something that may be more important to our health and, and longevity, which is exactly the soft drivers, friendship, romantic relationship, volunteering, kindness, community involvement, which actually may be more important, but we just don't have any time left over or any, you know, will to take it on because we've been spending our time reading on fat diets. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to me also because a lot of the focus on how to be healthier, how to reduce disease, how to reduce inflammation, how to extend your life these days has been on either things to do that a lot of people don't find enjoyable so they have to find ways to force themselves to do it or things to stop doing you know restrictions in their lives um that people really struggle with and most fail at and then shame themselves on top of it um yeah. and so what's interesting to me and again we're not saying you know, like just go out and eat fast food everything and never mm -hmm. ever move your body these things do matter but bigger picture you know i guess it's like and you speak to this in your writing and and and, I, and I've, I've seen this conversation also and always been curious about it. You know, the idea of the Mediterranean diet, right? Well, this is, this it's the diet hmm. that creates all of these amazing health comes that we've measured, you know, like in, in Mediterranean populations. And in fact, well, maybe the diet is a part of it, but you reference the Rosetto effect, yeah. which, which is a really interesting experiment that says, well, maybe it's actually something bigger than that. Yeah, so what I'm saying in Grand Yang, you know, that maybe Mediterranean diet is not necessarily just about the amount of olive oil or red wine or 
vegetables that are in the diet. So not about the pure nutritional aspect of it, but that is also about the way the Mediterranean cultures are eating so i live in france and i can observe it you know firsthand and here the eating is not just about the food it's actually about with whom you eat so people here really really cherish the time they spend eating they take a long time to eat they celebrate it and they eat with others right at the table so for example in people who are in their 30s and 40s in france uh, among them 61 percent claim that they eat dinner at the table with their family every single day. Whereas uh, in US, that number is only 24%. And in the statistic, it was not even uh, specified whether they're eating at a table or maybe in front of television, which is definitely not exactly eating a meal together. So so it's a very big difference, right? And um, and you also mentioned the, the Rosetto effect, right? So the Rosetto, Rosetto was, uh, I mean, it still is, a little town in Pennsylvania, uh, which was settled by Italians from a town called Rosetto in Italy. And uh, it uh, attracted attention of doctors in the 50s and 60s because there was no heart disease in Rosetto. Whereas in surrounding communities who which shared the same water supply, the same healthcare, and generally were very similar, uh, there was lots of heart disease, there were heart attacks and so on, people lived shorter. And so the doctors started investigating what's so special about Rosetto. And um, they checked the genes, of course, but there was it was not about the genes. It was not about the diet either, because the people in Rosetto actually forgot their Italian diet very, very fast and just started eating very greasy, sausages, drank a lot of alcohol. So it was not the diet. So what the scientists discovered was that it was actually about their community spirits. So what they did bring from Italy was their involvements in the social sphere of life. So they were extremely neighborly. They were visiting each other all the time. They were having events where everybody participated. They had civic organizations. They volunteered. They really, really cared about that. And um, this was most likely the reason why they escaped cardiovascular disease for for a very long time. Yeah, so it's almost like um, the socialization had and and deep focus on community and people almost had a protective effect <laughs> against yeah. whatever shifts away you know like they made from the Mediterranean diet to whatever like the typical diet was and you know, like in the town that there was this um, almost protective effect that um, really. You know, keeping the cultural traditions and exalting the relationships had um, a- along the way. I mean, it was interesting. I, w- I was in, uh, we were in Italy a couple of years back and I was struck by so many little things, but one of them was there's no such thing as a to-go cup in Italy. Like, yeah. you're, like you don't get espresso or cappuccino in a paper cup. It doesn't exist. France either. <laughs> yeah, it's just like the, the very concept of that is bizarre. You know, you get a, a tiny little porcelain, uh, you know, like cup. And even if you're not sitting, you know, you're just standing like at the bar and strangers are just talking to each other as you like the, the, the idea of just grabbing something and going and not in some way using it as a reset, as a pause, or maybe a way to connect to somebody who's, who's standing or sitting next to you. Just, it doesn't exist in the way that it does here. Yeah, you know, when I moved to France, I moved here from Canada, and so I was used to the typical Canadian way of eating. So, you know, I would often eat in my car on my own or while walking down the street in a rush, you know, just munching on my sandwich. And when I moved here, I very quickly learned that you just don't do that in France. You don't eat in your car, you don't eat while walking down the street. It's a, it's a very big faux pas. And so right now, if I had to do it, it would just, it just would feel so wrong. I just cannot eat on the street anymore, you know, and unless you, I have to sit down properly and then it's fine. But you, you, you just cannot just rush it somewhere, you know, in, while do, you're doing something else. It just doesn't, um, doesn't work that way. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting that, you know, when you do these things, when you build them into your life, not only does it make life more pleasant just on a lived day-to-day basis, but it actually affects, it It can change your physiology and your psychology by making these sort of like subtle changes in the way that you relate. I'm curious what you've seen in terms of, you know, how does it actually change you? What are the internal changes that happen in the context of when you spend more time with friends and family or just community people that are your chosen family, people you just, who nourish you and, and who you maybe nourish back? So that was one of the fascinating things uh, I found out when I was writing Growing Young, that there is just so much 
you know, in terms of biology, physiology that connects our emotions, our social lives to our health and lifespan. Because, you know, people often assume that this is some kind of new agey thing that, you know, just very fluffy, no, no, no research really, no, just, you know, stories maybe. But the truth is that while researching growing young, I read over 600 papers and experiments, very, very academic. And that's, Uh, really show that there's just such an amazing biological connection exactly between whether exactly we are connected to our, to our friends and neighbors and community and how our body functions. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense because we are social apes. So we are we evolved to be with a tribe, just like, for example, chimpanzees, they are uh, social apes as well. They need to be with others. And so this is how we evolved. This is how we've been for the most of our evolutionary time and um, and there are certain biological mechanisms that encourage being together with others and discourage being alone so for example when apes just like chimps or humans uh, groom each other or touch in our case uh, we get a boost of endorphins which are so-called social hormones which on one hand make us feel more connected to others more kind of included and give us all this kind of warm and fluffy feelings on the other hand they also affect our physiology in a very straightforward way so for example endorphins are pain natural painkillers so on one hand you may be hugging someone and you're feeling connected on the other hand you're getting pain-killing, you know, side effects. And we have other hormones like this as well. We have oxytocin, the famous laugh hormone. This also gets um, secreted when we are with others. And it also has physiological effects. Again, pain-killing, anti-inflammatory. You said, you know, that we're looking at anti-inflammatory ways of eating, whereas exactly this hormone oxytocin has such anti-inflammatory properties as well. And there is also serotonin. And um, on the other side of the spectrum, we have all this kind of of um, stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline and many, many others as well that uh, don't get secreted when we are with others because it calms us down to be surrounded by by our tribe, basically. So there is lots of different uh, processes, you know, that's evolved uh, that are, you know, there's, we, I could go much deeper into it, but just to keep it ba very basic, that we have a whole zoop of hormones that works together uh, when we are surrounded by other people. Yeah, I love that because, you know, the idea of, well, I could try and move my body in a particular way and eat a whole bunch of things and not eat a whole bunch of things to create a similar internal physiological effect in my body that would be beneficial. Or I could hang out with people I love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, not that it's an either or thing, but just yeah. the fact that you you get a truly strong internal shift in, in physiology um, by doing something that is nourishing just interpersonally is really powerful. The, the um, And I guess, you know, there's been so much focus on the microbiome, on the gut microbiota these days and, and its relationship to well-being and inflammation and even our relationships can affect that. Yeah, that's another fascinating part. As you've said, you know, we are thinking about mic microbiome a lot these days and we are always talking about it in terms of probiotics, what you should be ingesting or you should not be ingesting to keep it healthy. But the truth is that our microbiome is also in a very large part about our social life. So uh, I took, uh, that was one of the fun parts when I was writing the book, I actually went to Oxford again and I was um, helping in an experiment on wild mice in the woods around Oxford University where scientists were basically catching the wild mice and checking their um, their social networks uh, and also checking their microbiome and how it's affected by whom they were hanging out with, how many friends this certain mouse had, and so on and so on. And uh, what they showed is that um, the more diverse friendships the rodents had, the more diverse and healthier microbi microbiomes they also had. And it works the same way with humans. So we know that we share our gut microbes with other people. So for example, when we do contact sports, uh, the teams will be ex will actually exchange their microbes together. And the same ha thing happens when you hug other people, you exchange microbes with them. Uh, and this is a good, generally good thing for your gut microbiome because it, the more diverse it is, it tends to be healthier. So, so it's also about hanging with others as well, not just about what you swallow and or don't swallow. Yeah, I love that. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You also reference, um, I think it was a Japanese study that I thought was really interesting about the contrast of people who rarely meet and the health effect of that versus basically not eating any, any plants. Yeah, so, you know, so that's, uh, studies show that uh, not meeting with your friends, you know, is at least as bad for you as eating absolutely no vegetables or, or fruits at all. And for whatever reason, in that particular study, it was even more pronounced for men. There are sometimes uh, differences like that, but uh, in general, it's bad for everybody. If you don't see your friends, it's almost the same or the same as if you were not eating at all any fruits and veggies and just, you know, junk food, cheese and white bread. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, on the one hand, it's, you know, I, I love hearing all this research. On the other hand, in the moment that we're having this conversation, it becomes even more concerning because if we know that, you know, having regular contact with people that we enjoy being around is so critical to our well-being and potentially our longevity and our disease risk. And we are in different parts of the world right now that are in various states of isolation, lockdown, complete, you know, social and physical distancing. I'm sure you've, you've thought about this, you know, like what the long-term effects of this may be on what we're talking about. I mean, definitely, you know, we know that social isolation is extremely bad for human physiology. We know that human people who are socially isolated they have, for example, shorter telomeres. So once again, you know, we've talked about telomeres. So we have shorter telomeres when we're social, the people who are socially isolated. Then uh, we know that people who are socially isolated have worse antiviral response, meaning they are more actually prone to getting sick with viruses, which is kind of ironic when you think about that. And uh, they also live shorter. So in one California study, people who are socially isolated were actually three times more likely to die prematurely than people who are not isolated. So so definitely there are very serious reasons to be worried about us separating ourselves from other people. But on the other hand, I always try to be optimistic and uh, I hope that when we are doing the social isolation right now, which is often very much required, that maybe we realized how much we actually need connection, you know, because when we're living our lives as we did before, always rushing, never really stopping to think, maybe we didn't really appreciate how important it is to us. But now that we are often forbidden 
from seeing our close ones, our loved ones, then maybe we'll appreciate how important those relationships are. You know, very often in the so-called old normal before the coronavirus, we've seen people in restaurants, let's say, theoretically being together, but everybody would be looking at their phones and really not paying attention. This is not a proper social relationship. This is not something that helps you grow young. You know, you need to really connect, to look at each other, to really be there. And I'm hoping, you know, it's hard to imagine right now that people who have been isolating for a long time and they will meet their friends and everybody just just looking at their phones. You know, we've been so starved of each other that I'm certain we'll be appreciating those relationships more. And I hope it stays this way. And this in this way, we could live longer in a way because of coronavirus if it switches us to appreciating these things more and also about community you know in many places around the world people were for the first time discovering their neighbors uh, you know because they were locked down together and you heard so many uplifting stories about this community spirit and kindness and helping others and i really hope that we learn something from that yeah it's such an interesting point you know in new york city where everyone lives for the most part in in brownstones or buildings that can be, you know, as, as few as a dozen people or as many as hundreds and hundreds of people. People as a general rule don't know their neighbors and don't really associate, you know, you may kind of get stuck in an elevator and you use the word stuck with other people. Um, but nobody really, you know, when you're an elevator, you certainly don't look at anybody and you don't talk to anybody. It's sort of against the social norms. And, and you are seeing um, a lot of people, and I'm hearing a lot of stories among friends and family where people are just doing things for the other people in their building. Or maybe if they notice that they have neighbors, you know, across the hall who are older and it's not safe for them to get out, just, you know, knocking on their door and yelling inside, hey, I'm going to, you know, like the shop, can I get something for you? In a way that, I mean, I've spent my entire adult life in the city. I've, I've never really seen before uh, like mm. this. Yeah, that's certainly very hopeful. And, you know, if... If we shift our attention this way long term, that could really have very beneficial effects on our health and, um, you know, our diabetes risk, our cardiovascular risk, all these kind of diseases that are really a big plague in our society as well. Yeah, the um, I, I am hopeful also, like you, I, I think we're going through a window which is really painful right now. But uh, assuming it is short lived in the context of our lives and society, if it has the effect of maybe having us really re-examine the way that we want to live and the way we want to relate to people and the longer-term effect is a sustained behavior change, that would be pretty good in a way that's healthy, of course, <laughs> at the appropriate timing when it's safe to, to go and do those things. Um, a particular type of relationship also, we've, we've talked a lot about just general friends and family. You also speak to romantic relationships and how they're sort of like very defined um, ideas about how that affects this. Yeah, so actually, if you were to just do only one thing for your health and longevity, just one single thing, then then having a happy romantic relationship is just the best thing, because this can lower your mortality risk by almost 50%, and to compare diet and exercise usually hover around 20-30%, so having a happy, committed, romantic relationship is just amazing in terms of health and longevity, much better than any diets you could ever think of. But of course, the key word here is committed, this is what I often say, that you know, just living together is not as good and the, the reason for that is just exactly this commitment so this kind of feeling that you are in it for for good no matter you know what happens until death to us part and i think this this is because it gives people this sense of security and some um, trust and just um, that the other person is there for them and always will be and this calms all the stress systems that we have in our bodies that evolved when we're still in the savannah and we, we feel we belong that way. Uh, we just respond in a much healthier way. Yeah, so it's interesting. So then would it, would it be accurate to say it's not so much about the romantic part of that, of that but it's really much more about having a, a truly open, vulnerable and committed relationship that you like trust and expect to extend over you know, like a very long time? Oh, yeah, certainly. You know, it's not about the butterflies and the kind of, you know, f flowers and the early stages of romance. It's not about that. It's uh, it's about the commitment and about the, the long-term love that you have for another person and staying together and 
trusting and opening and, and so on and so on, which usually starts with the butterflies. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it's not just about, it's not about that phase in particular, it's about the long term. Okay, which brings up another um, question, which is, does it have to be a person? <laughs> I mean, you know, yes and no. So definitely, uh, there is. It has to be a person to get that real, really strong effect. But it's sure that your dog can also give you some small uh, boost as well. Much much smaller than than a human can. But still, uh, research shows that uh, looking deeply into your dog's eyes gives you some oxytocin boost, so the love hormone boost as well. And again, I've mentioned before, it also has very straightforward effects on our physiology, positive ones, and actually for the dog as well. So the dog also gets some health boosts mm. from looking into his owner's eyes. Uh, so that's, that also is a, is a nice thing. But it's obviously, it's not a replacement for a human connect, connection. Yeah. So if, if you're the person who has a dog who you know, is immediately greeted when you get home, and if you try and look at your phone while the dog is there and the dog basically swats it away with the paw... <laughs> The dog knows something you don't know. It's like actually important to to look into each other's eyes and to have that contact. Um, The sort of building on the idea of relationships, um, you also look at kindness and how that affects our well-being. And there's some interesting research around there as well. Yeah, so, you know, for example, people who volunteer a lot, uh, research shows that they have lower blood pressure, for example. They spend less nights in hospitals. They they have lower blood glucose levels as well. So there are very, uh, very direct physiological effects you can measure. They can even see it on the level of their gene expression, actually. That's uh, the when scientists look into their uh, white blood cells, they can see differences there. You know, it's, it's really amazing how... How, how it really affects the physiology. Uh, and um, and this is probably because we've evolved something called the caregiving system. So basically, to care for others, we need to be calm. So when you think about nature, about parents taking care of their children, and I'm talking more, you know, the savanna version, you really need to be calm and not anxious to be able to provide for somebody who depends on you. If you are running amok, you know, panicking, crazy and scared and stressed, you really are not doing a good job. So this is why most likely um, we, when we care for others, and it actually is the same for other animals. So there is research, for example, on rats that show exactly the same effects. When, When they care for for others, uh, their stress systems in their bodies really calm down. So all this cortisol response and everything really, you know, calms down. And uh, because, of course, chronic stress is bad for our health, I don't think I have to remind that to anybody, then um, this kind of caregiving helps us calm down. And it, of course, it evolves mostly for us to help to take care of our offspring, but it works as well if you take care of your neighbors or your community or uh, or some kind of charity organizations you are working for. So as long as you're caring and helping and giving, it really um, affects our physiology in a very positive way. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if if part of that is, you know, if you start combining these things to a certain extent, we talked earlier about, you know, the notion that research shows that actually as you get later on in your years, you you tend to be the average person tends to actually become increasingly happier, more satisfied with life. And, you know, if you are somebody who is on in years and you're in a committed relationship and, you know, we, we tend to think that if that person in your relationship with needs being taken care of, that maybe that's a burden, but maybe what this is saying that in fact, the act of you being a caretaker to a certain extent that there's benefit to them, but also maybe um, benefit to you as well beyond just expressing your love. I mean, so several years ago, there was some research showing that caregiving is not good for caregivers. The research showed that they were more more sickish and just generally suffering because of that. But um, over the years, there was more and more uh, studies done on this topic, which went a little bit deeper and checked it from different angles. And uh, I even talked to the scientists who did the original study, and they admitted that the population was quite limited there. So the newer research generally shows that actually there are benefits to caregiving exactly even when you are taking care for an elderly parent for example and it may seem draining and difficult as long as it's not too overwhelming as to a way that it affects you physically like you're you know you because of the 
purely physical strain of lack of sleep and so on, as long as it's not too extreme, uh, because you are not sick yourself, for example, then this is this has positive effects on us. So that's the the newest um, take from on this uh, on caregiving. Yeah, and and I, I love that you had that qualifier that you know it. We're talking about a level of caregiving that you're capable of giving, rather yeah. than it actually really draining you physically or emotionally to a point where it then becomes um, unhealthy or destructive on some level for you. But I wonder also part of what's going on there is that it gives you, you may get a sense of purpose from all sorts of other things in your life, but maybe that also adds to, it It gives you another source of this sense of meaning or purpose. Yeah, definitely sense of meaning or sense of purpose in life is also extremely important for health and longevity. And when the research uh, researchers check um, populations who either have or don't have purpose in life. You can also see very visible differences in their health and longevity. And um, when I was traveling in Japan for, for research, I also talked to many people there and scientists as well as very elderly people, octogenarians and centenarians there. And they often talk about something called ikigai, which uh, that generally translates into this um, reason for living, which for us is kind of purpose, purpose of life or something like that. And uh, they consider it an extremely important health measure to the point that the health minister of Japan actually in official documents considers ikigai a part of health strategy, just like nutrition or exercise. And they really often talk about the ikigai when they really think about it and um, and it's part of very deep part of the culture and usually also when i talk with western about ikigai or maybe purpose in life sometimes they say okay you know i don't know playing golf is my purpose in life but in general it's more about giving something back usually so as if you are doing something only purely for yourself it often doesn't work so as you said about caregiving this would be something exactly that could give somebody ikigai and the japanese often talk when they talk about ikigai, they say, for example, that it's taking care of their grandchildren or their children or their work or their involvement in their community or things like that, but not necessarily exactly playing golf. Yeah, I remember reading research that looked at people who were doing work that they would normally have considered to be work that they didn't like doing, that was emptying, that paid their rent, but little more, and they considered drudgery. And when they found people who were part of that group who could say that they were doing work in support of something else that was deeply meaningful to them, it completely transformed mm -hmm. the the experience of the work. So like if it was, well, you know, I've got a family back home or I've got a, a mother who like, and I'm supporting their health needs or whatever it may be, like, but for the fact that I'm doing this thing, somebody I love couldn't be able to be okay in some way, shape or form it completely transformed the experience of it. It gave this thing a sense of purpose that, but for that fact, it just, it, it would have been so much harder to find. And that changed the quality of the person's life more broadly. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about the Japanese people as well, who are, by the way, the longest living nation on the planet, uh, is that um, they often don't retire the way we do in the West. So when the Japanese people reach retirement age, a lot of them actually look for a different job. So they call it a silver hair job. Uh, we even have silver hair job employment agencies, especially for people after retirement age. And uh, they start on jobs that are very simple, often part-time, usually badly paid, but they do it just for the sense of purpose. So for example, you will have, and I talk to people like that, you know, like you will have a CEO or some kind of high powered manager in some company who retires and they then takes on a silver hair job as a parking attendant or a public space gardener. And it may seem weird to us, but for them, it gives them this purpose that they're doing something for the community because they're helping people find parking spots or they're helping their little town square look pretty. And, uh, and this really gives them some kind of of meaning and uh, still involvement, being part of community, having work friends, and and they really believe that. And studies confirm this. It's not just their you know anecdotal that actually does help them live longer. Yeah, I love that. I I have heard ikigai translated. I know there, I think that the Western overlay tends to want to equate it with life purpose, and I've also seen well. You know, it's not actually a legit ikigai unless you can earn a living doing it too, which completely bastardizes the original concept of what it is. 
but I've heard it translated as a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. So it's not like the capital L life purpose necessarily, but it's really just, it's a sense of purpose that makes you want to wake up because you know you have something that to do. Yeah, exactly. It can be this parking attendant thing, right? You're just helping people find their parking spot. It has it doesn't have to be, you know, I'm changing the whole, I don't know, governmental system in my country or something like that. It can be something really small, but it, you feel that people are benefiting. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's it's interesting to really just to kind of talk about the granular elements with you, but also zooming the lens out, really understanding that, yes, there are these things we talk about on a daily basis, exercise, nutrition, the biohacking community gets much more granular about specific interventions and tries to really titrate it. But, you know, when you share information, you know, like about showing that, you know, a, a simple type of relationship will, will have equivalent effect on your well-being and longevity as a bunch of different specific things that very often we don't want to do and that it it's all about bringing things that are more pleasant into our lives. Yeah. That is a prescription that I would like to have written for me that I would doggedly uh, comply with, you know, given the opportunity. And I think uh, for, for a lot of people, I wonder if knowing that there's actual science that shows that this stuff really does matter almost would give them the freedom to say, okay, so so let me elevate this to a place of, centrality in the way that, that I choose what to do and not to do. And, you know, it's just so much more pleasant, you know, just doing something for others, being, spending time with your friends, being involved in your neighborhood, you know, volunteering for some local events. It's just so much more pleasant than popping some pills or looking on the internet for some new test to measure your telomeres and taking the swabs, you know, this is just... It's just one side is like so lonely and miserable and you're, you know, like in this kind of internet world. On the other hand, it can be just with your friends, with people you like doing pleasant things, right? And hanging out with your neighbors for a long meal together. That's uh, that's just so much happy. Mm, yeah. feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To live life with others and for others, and that way you also end up living long and healthy, but with basically thinking more in terms of we than I. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode and then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.